Hi, everyone, and welcome to our mysterious Halloween episode of What the Forensics. I'm Rebecca, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Nicole and Journey. We'll be running the show a little differently today as we each have different mysterious cases to tell you. So we're very excited to bring you these mysteries, but please bear in mind that there will be discussions of assault, murder, sexual assault, and kidnapping. So viewers or listeners, discretion is advised. So without further ado, because I really want to get into hearing your stories, uh, let's get started. And I think we should start with Journey today, because Journey, I know you were very excited to tell us about your case. <laughs> yes, I am. So I researched the missing Sodder children, and their story is that a fire broke out at 1 a.m. the night before Christmas in 1945 in the home of George and Jenny Sodder in Fayetteville, West Virginia. Uh, George and Jenny were able to escape with four of their nine children at home, and the other five were never seen again. So they had 10 children in total. One was off at war. They never gave his name. The five missing children are Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty. And the four that survived are Sylvia, Marion, John, and George Jr. Um, so George Sr. had tried to re-enter the house, but he couldn't see anything through the smoke and fire, obviously. And so he had to rush back outside to try and reach the upstairs bedrooms where the five children were. But his ladder was missing from its usual spot. He then tried to move one of his trucks um, beneath the windows, the upstairs windows, but it wouldn't start, which is super odd because it worked fine the day before. And then because it was Christmas, the rain barrel had frozen shut or solid, so he couldn't even throw water on the flames to try and like stop it, which is kind of sad. And then so a neighbor tried to call the fire department, but the operator didn't pick up. Uh, the neighbor had to drive to town to get a hold of the fire chief. And even though the station, like the fire station, was only two and a half miles away, the firefighters didn't arrive until eight in the morning. And so obviously the house had already been burned to ash. That doesn't helpful. make any sense. Right? It's super weird. But that's just and one of the, the fire first. fire was at one? Yeah. So seven hours to drive two and a half miles. It's weird. Anyway, okay, yeah, so naturally, the parents assumed that their five children were dead, um, but there was no trace of remains, and the fire chief suggested that the fire was hot enough to fully cremate them, but cremation occurs between 1600 to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit, and most house fires are only 1100 degrees Fahrenheit, so that doesn't really add up, and uh, Jenny, the mom, didn't believe that her five children could die in a fire and leave absolutely nothing behind, like not even piles of ashes, like there was just nothing. So she conducted some private experiments burning chicken bones, and every time there was a pile of charred bones left, which makes sense. And she even went to the crematorium and asked how long it took to burn the body. And she was told that it took two hours at 2,000 degrees, but their house burnt down in 45 minutes. So, again, that math doesn't really add up. Were they seen before the fire? Like, was everyone just asleep? Fire happened, they just ran out and didn't really account for everyone? Um... You know? They had opened some Christmas presents, which I talk about later okay. on, and then they all went to bed, and then 
only the six of them, the parents and the four children, left the house, and the other five were just never seen again. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So the fire was actually attributed to faulty wiring, and then death certificates were issued for the five children, and then, like, the remains of the house were covered in five feet of dirt because the father wanted to, like, have it as a memorial, pretty much. After that, the remaining solders they began to kind of retrace the strange events that preceded the fire because there's some really really odd ones and so the first one that um this article talks about is a stranger appeared at the house asking about work and he pointed out two fuse boxes saying that they're going to cause a fire someday which is really spooky especially because george the father had had the wiring checked earlier like he had an electrician come out and checked the wiring before this fellow came and was like, no, that's going to burn your house down. And then another man came to the house to sell life insurance, which if you don't have, you should really get. And when they didn't buy any from him, he warned that the house is going to go up in smoke and the children are going to be destroyed because the father spoke bad things about Mussolini because he was Italian. Oh, this is all so suspicious. That's a lot right? to take in. Yeah. One Mussolini, Mussolini, and then who was that? Like common for people to just be knocking on your doors and be like, "Buy my life insurance, or it's you're scary. gonna die." Well, they don't usually threaten death. Oh. Um. I think that'd be they, a good. They pitch. do like there are door-to-door life insurance salesmen. <laughs> 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 anyway. Um, the older Sodder sons also noticed a man parked on the highway watching the younger kids come home from school, which, oh, maximum creepiness. And then half an hour before the fire broke out, the children, like, opened some presents, like I was saying. And then before going to bed, Jenny, the mom, she turned off all the lights downstairs, closed the curtains, and locked the doors after noticing that the lights were on, the curtains were open, and the door was unlocked, which was weird. And then as she was falling asleep, she heard a loud, sharp bang on the roof and then heard something rolling down the roof. And like half an it's hour later. Santa! <laughs> <laughs> it was Santa for the kids and his reindeer. <laughs> Normally crash it doesn't landing. roll down the roof. <laughs> Maybe he had a few too many drinks. <laughs> that could be. The eggnog was really hitting him hard this year. Anyway, half an hour later, she was woken up and their house was on fire. So, again, super suspicious. And then, um, upon investigation, a telephone repairman actually told them that their power lines had been cut and they were not burned like originally thought. So, this means there was no power to the house. So, why were the lights on? Like, why did she have to go downstairs and turn the lights off if there was no power to their house? Or was it cut when she had gone to bed? Right? That's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, that's the only explanation that makes sense to me. But they also, make sure to point that out. Um, did they ever get a name of these creepy men? Like, the salesman people yeah the salesman and the person that watching the children nope i don't think too much of it until after these five children disappeared and their house burned down interesting 
Okay. Yeah. And then a witness appeared, and he was like, oh, by the way, I saw a man with an apparatus that could be used to remove car engines on the farm around the time of the fire. (laughs) So that could explain why the trucks didn't work. But also how, like, he, my understanding was that this witness just came out of the blue. I was just like, oh, by the way, I saw this. So I don't know how. Yeah, factual. maybe. Maybe he should be questioned. Right. It seems very suspicious. And the thought on the roof wasn't Santa. Um, the father explained it as a pineapple bomb, which is also known as a fragmentation grenade. So that's probably how the fire started. So someone threw a grenade on their roof. Yes. There's so much <laughs> wrong with this. <laughs> My yeah. brain doesn't even know like where to connect all of these. Like it's so strange. Also, I just googled the apparatus to take out a car engine. <laughs> No one just walks around with this huge-ass thing. Like, I couldn't imagine just, like, strolling down the street with this. And then someone being like, oh, I know what that is. That's to run the (laughs) engine. Like, if I saw that, I'd be like, that's a big piece of metal. Yeah, you don't often bring that with you when you're going places. Interesting. Okay. Like, I think, like, that's not usually mm-hmm. some of my top five I need to leave the house with. Mm-hmm. Are you I, sure? Yeah, I <laughs> know. It's number six. Phone, <laughs> keys, uh, apparatus to remove engines. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, um, after this fire had happened, they were talking to people, um, A woman claimed to have seen the children in a passing car during the time the fire was in progress. Um, They didn't expand on that. And then (laughs) another woman in a tourist shop claimed to have served them breakfast. And then another woman at a Charleston hotel said she had seen them a week after the fire and told authorities that they were with two men and two women, all of Italian descent. So that's where that little Mussolini tidbit comes in, I think. I don't know. And, yeah, so going back to that Mussolini tidbit, um, George, the father, was born in Italy, and then he left, and no one knows why, what made him leave that country, but I'm assuming because he trash-talked Mussolini, it had something to do with the political goings-ons at that time and maybe the fact that his children went missing shortly after um he was wanted I don't know um so there was a thorough excavation performed at the site in 1949 by a Smithsonian pathologist Oscar B. Hunter and he found pieces of vertebrae in the ashes and the dirt but they showed no evidence of being burnt. And in his report, he mentioned that because the house only burned for half an hour, there should have been five full skeletons, not just four vertebrae. So he kind of hypothesized that they were in the dirt that 
George had used to kind of backfill where the house was. I don't know why there was human vertebrae in that dirt. That's a little bit odd. Just a little. (laughs) And then in 1968, so 20-plus years after this fire happened, the mom, Jenny, received a picture in the mail that had, quote, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie, I-L-I-L boys, A90132, or 35, end quote, on the back. And so the man in the picture bore a remarkable resemblance to Lewis, and George and Jenny sent a private detective to Kentucky where the picture was sent from, and they never heard from Lewis again. What was the gibberish on the back of that? Was it supposed to be like code or something, or binary, the ones and... I have no idea. I think it's weird that they had A90132 or 35 written out. That seems a little bit odd to me. So it so or 35 was written out. It wasn't just a like a confusion of whether the 2 was a 2 or a 5. My understanding was that it was written out. That's weird. I know. And yeah, yeah I don't know if that was his little like cry for help like I'm still alive. This is where I am. I don't know. But to this day, it remains unsolved. And each person has their own theories of what actually happened. And the youngest, who was two at the time, is now 69. Both of the parents have passed away. Um, so really, that's just that's just what it is. It's five children went missing and no one knows what happened. Wow, that's very interesting, but also very sad that there was, like, so many suspicious things that happened and no one cared to look into them more. Yeah, it was just like a, oh, they're missing. Right. Whatever. Yeah, super, super weird. So if you're soldered children or child and you're listening to this, bring yourself in. We want to know if you're alive. Yeah, we'd like to talk to you. Yeah, tell us about why you set your house on fire. I think my theory is that the children wanted out. Ten kids is a lot of kids. Right? I feel like if I had nine siblings, I'd grab my favorite and be like, hey, you want to get out of here? (laughs) (laughs) Set the house on fire, make sure they're alive. And just go. It's just, it's so weird. And I don't understand. Thank you. Thank you, Journey, for telling us about the solder missing children. Uh, that was really interesting. And now I think we would like to hear all about Nicole's case and the Ketty Cabin murders. Yeah. So this one's kind of fascinating. There's a couple theories behind this. So essentially what happened, it was a family of five children and a single mother. Her name was Sue Sharp. She divorced her husband, moved from Connecticut to Ketty, California. And 14-year-old Sheila, so the daughter, came back from a sleepover in this, like, campsite. So there's multiple cabins. They were staying in cabin 28. Sheila was at cabin 27 or 26 at a friend's house. And at between 7 or 8 a.m. on April 12, 1981, she walks into the cabin to find three dead bodies. It was her mom, 35-year-old Sue Sharp, her brother, Johnny Sharp, 15, and Johnny's friend, Dana, who was 17. So Sheila 
uh, ran to her neighbors and they realized that in the back of the cabin, like the room next door, there were three boys unharmed, unaware of anything that was happened. It was, um, who was it? It was Greg, Rick, and their friend Justin Smart. So they were asleep and untouched and unaware in the next room. So I don't exactly. So the neighbor got the boys out through the back window so they wouldn't have to see, obviously, like the massacre in the living room. And all three of them were brutally bound and assaulted. Knives and hammers were like the main murder weapon. So they were killed by knives and a hammer and Officers found a bloodied, bent steak knife, a butcher knife, and a claw hammer. So the amount of force that you would need to literally bend a steak knife backwards was, like, that's insane. Yeah, that's insane. So blood was found everywhere at this scene, apparently. So it was suggested that the victims were actually moved and rearranged because of the amount So the positions they were found in, so the son, John, he was face up closest to the door with his hands bound with medical tape and his throat had been slit. And the interesting thing is they didn't have medical tape at the house. Like Sheila and the other sons don't recall ever buying medical tape. So the people who did this must have brought it in. Dana was face down on the floor beside John with his head bashed in and manually strangled. And he was the only one that suggested manual strangulation. Um, His ankles were tied with the same wire that was around John's ankles. So the two of them were connected. It was either his hands or his ankles. I forget what the source said, but the him and his uh, friend were connected. And then the mom, Sue, she was naked from the waist down on her side gagged with a bandana and her own underwear and then taped over her mouth. Um, And then the injuries were consistent with a struggle and there was an imprint of the butt of an 880 pellet gun on the side of her head. So her throat had also been cut and although she was naked, there was no signs of sexual assault. That's really weird. Yeah. And the walls were even stabbed somehow. So, like, there were knife marks in the walls, and the only evidence outside of the living room was blood found on one of the daughter's sheets. And there was a shoe print found outside, but, like, nothing ever came of the evidence. After a couple hours, I'll talk about all of the issues with this case, but they realized that 12-year-old Tina Sharp was missing. So they called the FBI in, and they got involved but they were only involved for two weeks. Like the FBI came in and was like, oh my gosh, there's a 12-year-old missing girl. Okay, let's help out. Two weeks later, they're like, nah, we'll hand it back to the sheriff's county. Like That's the sheriff's so office. weird. That's not very helpful. Right? <laughs> was it her bed that had the blood on it? Yeah. yeah. So it was okay. Tina's bed sheets that had a little bit of blood on it. Yikes. That's not good. At the time, the sheriff and the deputy were not able to discern a motive, so there was no forced entry, the cabin's telephone was left off the hook, all of the lights were turned off, drapes were closed, and I guess they were also able to find a partial fingerprint, though. The boys apparently slept through the murders that happened 
mere feet from them. Like it was in the next room. Yeah, that seems so unlikely. Especially with how violent the case seems to be. Yeah, and it's strange because the couple next door recalls hearing muffled screams at 1.30 a.m., but they didn't know where it was coming from, so they went back to bed. Naturally. Naturally. But if you can hear it next door in a different cabin, would you not assume the boys in the back would hear something too? Do you think they'd been drugged? I don't know. Like, there's no mention of it at all. And I kind of get, I talk about it a bit more too, but Justin, he's the son of one of the neighbors. And there's like this whole theory that the neighbor did it. Um, So they think that he knew it. And there were some like techniques done to bring up evidence Because I guess Justin remembered some stuff that happened, but he thought he dreamt it. So they put him through hypnosis. He later said that he saw Sue with two men in the house, one with a mustache and long hair, the other clean shaven with short hair, both wearing glasses and one having a hammer. This is under hypnosis, though, and originally he believed that he dreamt it, so he wasn't 100% sure. And it was reported that John and Dana, so the two boys that were killed, came home and argued with the two men, resulting in a violent fight. The 12-year-old who's missing was allegedly taken out the back door by one of the men after waking up to the commotion. (laughs) This was pre-DNA testing age as well. So any of the evidence that was collected was useless. Fantastic. Another interesting tidbit is that the Sacramento Department of Justice sent in two agents from not the homicide unit, but the organized crime unit. So, like, mob, mafia, like, organized, that kind of thing. So they thought this was a mob hit? Mm Mm-hmm. So I have a couple theories, but... Three years later, Tina's skull was found, but sources vary. It's either between 50 to 100 miles away, but it was in another county, and she it was found alongside a child's blanket, blue jacket, a Levi's jacket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. And if you remember, it was like medical tape used to bind the three victims. Spooky. So she was found, like, her body was found. She wasn't found alive. Her skull was found. Oh. Mm-hmm. Joyous. And That's the sad. interesting thing with that is they got a call that nothing really came out of it, but they got an anonymous call once the skull had been found saying, I think this is Tina Sharp, before the medical examiner even had run like dental records and any of that and confirmed it was tina oh should they Mm -hmm. not have looked into this person like it was an anonymous 911 call so there wasn't really anything frustrating right and so some of the issues surrounding this which infuriate me the crime scene wasn't contained at all at all (laughs) like The Plumas County Sheriff's Office was in charge at the beginning, and under Sheriff Thomas, it was said just to be a shit show. Pardon my French. 
So plenty of errors. The first deputy on the scene confirmed that the three were dead. He was like, yep, they are not living. The second on the scene spoke to people outside. (laughs) I mean, what else are you going to do? It seems like the easy part of the job. Walk in and go, oh, those are dead bodies. Exactly. It's fairly obvious. It's fairly obvious. So the second um, deputy took statements. And then the two of them walked through the house to, air quote, review the scene. Then the sheriff Thomas came Another deputy arrived, and they also walked through the scene. So at this point, it makes seven people. So it's the two, so it's um, the daughter and the neighbor, and then these sheriffs and deputies. None of them knew how to preserve a crime scene. Nothing was done beforehand. No notes were taken, no photographs. It was after the fact that they walked through, that they took photographs. Uh Uh-huh. They took photographs. They did welfare checks. And potential witnesses were interviewed. And you said that they found a partial footprint outside, but what's to say that wasn't just a police officer reviewing the scene? Right? Thank you. And you know how I said that they realized Tina was missing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It took them several hours to realize she wasn't there. (laughs) It was literally several hours later where they were like, oh, yeah, there's one kid that's not here. Crap, where is she? And that's when they called the FBI in. And then two weeks later, the FBI was like, "Ah, nope, I'll hand this one back to you guys. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Right? Wow. And then two weeks later, only her skull was found. And then only her skull. So where is the rest of her body? With the anonymous phone caller. Right? Oh, my goodness. And so there's two main suspects of this. So you know Justin, Justin Smart. He was one of the boys that lived. So his father is one of the primary suspects. So they lived two cabins down. And he was angry with Sue, the mom, for interfering with his troubled marriage. So I guess Marty and Sue were having an affair. And Sue was telling the wife to leave Marty. And he did not like this, apparently. (laughs) This guy also says, by the way, I have a hammer that has gone missing. I don't know where it went. And this was before it came to light that a hammer was the murder weapon. And so they didn't just arrest him? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Did he just give up the information? He's like, yeah, I have a hammer. Um, Yeah. It went missing, though. Yeah. And it was also that Marty was close with the sheriff, too, at that time. So that seems a little fishy. Mm. So Marty did it with the help of the sheriff's department, and they contaminated the crime scene by walking through it. But his friend Bo was an ex-convict who recently moved in with Marty, but apparently nothing connected them to the crime, so neither were charged. Um, And they're both dead, so, like, Bo died in 88 and Marty in 2006. So they can't even be connected now, because the case reopened in 2016, which I'll get to later. Oh. But they're dead. And the prime suspects, like, what are you going to do without your prime suspects? Very true. The On the new case, investigator Gamberg, he met with an anonymous counselor who told him that Marty apparently made a confession saying he killed Sue and Tina, but had nothing to do with the boys. That doesn't make sense. But the G- 
when the DOJ was alerted of this, they dismissed it as hearsay. What? So nothing happened. So the, the main issue that I'm having with this right now is we have read of so many cases in our forensics class where the police officers just, like, falsified evidence, just put it there, just picked a suspect. And they yep. had a suspect who supposedly confessed and had a hammer that went missing, air quotes, you can't see what I'm doing. Um, and they just let him go. Yeah. Excuse me? And at the time, too, you guys know Henry Lee Lucas? He was... um. The guy who confessed to killing, like, hundreds of people but never actually killed that many. Oh, and then, the confession... Confession killer. Killer yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Him and Otis Toole, they were somehow, or for some reason, ruled out as the killers, even though they were killing in the area at the same time. And it's suspected that it was more than one person, because obviously one person could not have done all of that. Wow. Yeah, so going back to the whole um, Marty and Sue having an affair, that's, like, the most widely accepted theory at the moment. Um, and apparently, so Marty and Marilyn, smart, Justin's parents, they got a divorce, apparently, as soon as the murders came out. Well, as soon as the murders were discovered, I guess. And apparently he wrote Marilyn a letter saying, I've paid the price for your love and now I've bought it with four lives and you tell me we're through. Great. But uh, this was also dismissed and taken lightly and not considered. Yep. That's... That makes Mm -hmm. me mad. Yeah. The accounts for Marilyn leaving Marty the day of the murder um, explains why Justin Smart, their son, was unharmed in the back with the two boys. Because obviously they wouldn't want to kill their own son. And another theory is that Sheriff Thomas, who was on the case, he resigned only three months into the investigation and took a job with the Sacramento DOJ. It was the DOJ that dismissed the counselor, the confession to the counselor as hearsay, and the sheriff that was started the investigation but resigned three months later took a job with the Sacramento DOJ. So I Googled hearsay, and it mm-hmm. now makes sense why they dismissed it. Um, because it's like the report of another person's words by a witness. And so they can't really, like, it could just as easily be a rumor. It's just frustrating that there's so many cases that police have falsified evidence to match a suspect that they want it to match. Mm -hmm. And then there's evidence that, like, yeah, so a counselor may have actually gotten a confession that he killed these people. But because it came from an investigator, it was hearsay and couldn't be used. Yeah. Yeah. When Sheriff Thomas was in charge of this case, it was considered disastrous at best and corrupt at the worst, which is great. I, lo- I love to hear that from police departments or sheriff departments. Um, Sheila, the one who found um, her, the victims and her family, said, quote, I was told the suspects were 
told to get out of town. So to me, this means it was covered up, end quote, in 2016 when kind of the case reopened. Or it opened. Yeah. Sorry, it reopened in 2013. Hmm. So the kind of extra um, theory that exists is that it was a cover-up by the DOJ and the Thomas Run Sheriff Department about this whole drug smuggling scheme. Which kind of just takes it a whole other turn. A whole, whole other turn. <laughs> Where did drugs even enter into this story? So, apparently Marty and Bo were part of a larger drug smuggling scheme that involved the federal government. Because Marty, also like Martin, was known as a drug dealer. And Bo had connections to the Chicago mob with monetary interests in drug distribution. So this would explain why the DOJ sent two organized crime specialists, who were apparently corrupt, to the scene instead of the homicide agents. And it also gives reason to why Marty and Bo were told to leave town. Interesting. But why kill four kids, four people, leave three in that way? I feel like there's so many other ways to do that. Well, you don't even have to kill them. Like, that seems like the easiest, most reasonable solution. Yeah. So, they still have nothing on this case, pretty much. But it was reopened in 2013 because the Sheriff Hagwood, I guess, um, he became sheriff in 2010, reopened the case in 2013, they found in the case files an unopened envelope containing the 911 call. So that was the anonymous call that said, hey, this is Tina's skull before the ME confirmed it. So they didn't even ha- look at that evidence when it first happened. Wow. Yeah. The hammer was found in a pond near where Cabin 28 used to be by someone going like metal fishing or whatever it's called. Um, matching the description Marty gave and com- had said to have lost. And a knife was also found near the scene in 2016. But it kind of baffles me that the knife and hammer were found decades later after the cabin was torn down in 2003 and all of this stuff's happened. Like, I think that just like further suggests tampering of the crime scene somehow because like, how yeah. would they have not found those yeah and so since 2016 we've had no word from the fbi if those three evidence pieces have had any help to the investigation so there's still a five thousand dollar reward for any leads leading to an arrest wow and i like from the source i read they said five thousand but it may be more with the um inflation of prices compared to the 80s (laughs) fair enough how did they, just out of my own curiosity, how did they identify that it was Tina? Dental records. Oh, okay. I don't know yeah. if you said that or not, and I just missed it. Anyway. Yeah, so the ME, the medical examiner, confirmed through dental records. Okay. But wow. that was, again, after the fact, they got a 911 call saying, I have a strong suspicion this is Tina Sharp. Do you think that that created any bias? In the medical examiner, create or 
doing that uh, dental recording? Quite possibly. Possible. Especially because of the artifacts that were found close to the body. Like, even if it wasn't her, I feel like it's just garbage. Like, a tape dispenser to be thrown off with a couple pieces of clothing. But the child's blanket and the medical tape dispenser, like, could have really led the ME to say, oh, this is Tina. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. where was she for those three years? Has she been dead for those three years? Was she a sex slave for three years? Was she a part of the mob for three years? And where's her body? There's just so many unanswered questions. Wow. Well, thank you, Nicole, for that absolute doozy of a case. I got really into it. I apologize. It's just so frustrating. (laughs) It's very frustrating. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Now that um, Journey and I have discussed our spooktacular unsolved cases, Rebecca, why don't you kind of tell us a bit about yours since... It's, what is it, the first uh, milk box missing boy curtain Yeah, so uh, I'm talking about Eaton Pats. He was one of the first children to be featured on a milk carton in the 1980s. Okay, so just a little bit of a background on this information. Um, Eaton Pats was one of the first non-celebrity children to gain national attention for his disappearance in the United States. So... Eaton Pats was six years old, uh, living in Lower Manhattan of New York, when he disappeared on the 25th of May in 1979. His mother was running a daycare out of their house, uh, and it was very hectic that morning, and his older sister refused to get out of bed to walk Eaton to school. And he told his mom that he thought it would be a good start to his independence by asking his mom if he could walk himself to his bus stop that was just under two blocks away from his house in Soho, Lower Manhattan. So uh, his mom, and so unfortunately, this was the last time that she saw her son. Later that day, his neighbor, who typically babysat him and picked him up from his bus stop, noticed that he didn't get off the, off the school bus and contacted his parents. His parents then contacted the school and found out that he didn't arrive at school that day and had not been there. But the, his teachers never bothered to tell the principal that he had been missing from class. So right after finding this out, at around 5.15 p.m., his parents called the police. And that very same evening, a search of almost 100 police officers and a team of bloodhounds uh, was started in his neighborhood. This search continued for a few days and increased majorly. There was a very big community and police effort to find him. Uh, There was a search of a five-mile radius of his home. They put photos and descriptions of him all over the city uh, and even put his picture and description on a screen in Times Square. So he was last seen um, in a black pilot-type cap, a blue corduroy jacket, blue pants, blue sneakers with fluorescent stripes, carrying a blue cloth bag with elephant imprints. And that was the last description of him walking to his bus stop. So on May 27th, just two days after his disappearance, the, their first real lead came in when a witness claimed that he saw a boy that matched Eaton's description talking to a suspicious man very nearby to where his house was and said that the suspicious man was white, around 40 years old, had freckles and had dyed blonde hair. Um, So despite this lead, it led nowhere. They were unable to find any more information regarding this uh, mysterious man. And the case began to grow cold. 
So a couple weeks after his disappearance, they disbanded the emergency response unit responsible for his search, but they did keep his investigation open for further theories. So it went pretty cold after the emergency response team disbanded, and it wasn't until the early 80s that another major effort was put into his search, as the early 1980s was the first time that they started using the milk carton campaigns. And because he had been missing for so long and sparked such national attention, he was one of the first children to be featured on the national milk cartons. Uh, In 1982, the first kind of real clue picked up uh, for this case, a man completely unrelated to Pat's was picked up. His name was Jose Antonio Ramos, uh, and he was arrested for trying to lure two young boys into a drain pipe in Manhattan. A drain pipe? A drain pipe, yes. Weird. Is he who it is based off of? I was just going to say Maybe. That. <laughs> Yikes. Um, so upon further investigation of Ramos, uh, they found inside the drain pipe he was trying to lure them to, he found various photos of young boys that resembled Pat's. They didn't find any photo directly of Pat's, but of boys similar. So they thought there could have been a motive for the appearance and age of the young boys. So when asked about Pat's, Ramos said that he did date Eaton's former babysitter, but he had never actually met the child. It was him. It was him. (laughs) So despite this, um, no further investigation was done on him for a while. They just went, oh, well, he never met him. And he doesn't, there's no evidence against him. So he's out of the question. So yeah, it's very angering. He was arrested in 1982 for trying to lure children, but he wasn't, it wasn't in connection to Eaton. Uh, So he was arrested for just completely other charges. And then in 1985, while Ramos was still spending time in a Pennsylvania penitentiary, Um, A new prosecutor was assigned to Eaton's case after the old one had retired. This new investigator, his name, his last name was Graboy. He didn't think that they had heard enough from Ramos years prior. So he flew Ramos from his Pennsylvania penitentiary to New York without telling him why he was flying him there for questioning. And then directly asked him upon the start of questioning, how many times did you have sex with Eaton Pat's? That is a loaded question. Yes. So he comes into an interrogation room not knowing why he's there. And that's the first question. The first question. Not even like, hey, how was your day? Sir, did you sleep with a six-year-old child? Like, what? Like, it's horrible. So this confession is what's currently known as the 90% confession, because apparently after a lot of pressure, Ramos admitted to taking a young boy back to his apartment for sex on the same day that Eaton disappeared. And he said that he was 90% sure that the boy that he saw later on TV was the boy that he tried to lure to his drain pipe. Despite this, he does say even though he never mentions Eaton's name, he does say that after the encounter, he puts the child on the subway alive to visit his aunt. And various sources have said that Eaton didn't have aunts uh, in the part of town that he was sent to by subway. 
And if this was the case that Ramos had indeed assaulted him and put him on the subway, then Eaton could have returned home because he was alive and still in Manhattan. So even if Ramos did sexually assault Eaton, someone else could have killed him. Yes. One of the big problems with this case is that even though Ramos, right now anyways, there is much more to come with this case, but even though Ramos sounds like he could have done it, his confession never explicitly said Eaton's name. He never said that he killed Eaton. Even if he said whoever he assaulted, he put alive on a bus, so Eaton had to have been taken by someone else after that. So his confession, police didn't believe it, so they continued to investigate him. But their investigations into him went nowhere because the more they probed for evidence against him, they couldn't find anything. Uh, So because of that, he remained in prison for his other charges of molestation, but he wasn't charged for anything with relation to Pat's. In 2001, after more searches and investigations into different leads, including excavating a basement property nearby Pat's home, the parents decided that they would sign a petition with the courts to declare him legally dead because they couldn't go further with investigation if they hadn't done so. That's what they believed, basically. So they had declared him dead because they believed, even though they had no conclusive evidence against Ramos, that he had done it. So by filing him legally dead, uh, they filed a civil lawsuit against Ramos that didn't hold him criminally responsible for killing the child, but held him liably like still technically responsible so they won the case and he wasn't further charged with it but he was ordered to pay two million dollars to the family which never ended up happening so i have a big problem with this civil suit and how it was conducted because like i get it ramos is a bad guy he has molested children but their entire case was built on the fact that he he refused to contest the case. So it's not that they had evidence against him, it's that he just, he didn't build a defense against himself. That's really interesting. They weren't using the innocent until proven guilty. With this mindset, they were using guilty until proven innocent. That's upsetting. Very upsetting. But also a child is missing, so it's less upsetting than that. Mm -hmm. So supposedly we think this is the end of it. You know, someone is held liable for his death. We can close the case. Until 2010, there was a major plot twist and they reopened the case. The case is reopened in 2010 after the current DA of Manhattan is retired and the new DA, Cyrus Vance, chooses to reopen the case because he doesn't think justice was held against Ramos and he wants to criminally hold him responsible for the death of Pat's. Even though he can't be linked. Even though he's he can't be linked. Still gonna try to Ugh, okay. Yes. Okay. So after even more effort to convict Ramos, they're not finding much evidence. Uh two years later in twenty twelve, a lot of people were talking about the case again as they had just done an excavation of the Pat's family home. And this led to uh, a tip from the family of a man named Pedro Hernandez who stated that they lived in Lower Manhattan, and in 1982, Hernandez supposedly confessed to an open church confessional that he killed a young boy. This is hearsay from 1982. 
Despite the fact that it's hearsay, this leads to a full interrogation in 2015 of Hernandez. In this confession, Hernandez supposedly confesses that he lured Eaton into a bodega that he worked at, which is just a small grocery store. This bodega was supposedly near Pat's bus stop, and he says he then strangled him and put his body in a box where he left it outside a trash pile blocks away. However, in the video in, of the interrogation, Pedro states that he left the boy alive in a trash bag, so he couldn't he didn't kill the boy. There are many problems with this confession. I know Hernandez sounds guilty, but I'm not totally convinced. Here's some problems. Uh, we start with the fact that Hernandez has an IQ of 67. His interrogation and confession lasted over 24 hours. Much of the interrogation was not recorded. Some of the only stuff that was recorded was of his conf the actual confession, which was recorded on a police's uh, cell phone. Um, and he was given very little rest, so he was very tired throughout the whole thing. And for the past decade, he had been on some form of antipsychotic medication. So he was also mentally ill at the time of the interrogation. Um, Overall, a really credible witness. Yes. Another major problem is that in the weeks and years following this interrogation, the Pat's case was a big staple in the news. So using the... Um, evidence that he had a very low IQ and that he was mentally ill. He suffered uh, delusions and schizophrenia. Um, this news could have subconsciously influenced his beliefs about himself because in the years of this case, it's reported that many people tried to confess to it, but they were all just trying to confess for like other reasons. Like they never actually did it. I feel like that's a common thing for people who may be mentally ill or crazy, just confessed to, like, Henry Lee Lucas. He confessed to hundreds of killings, and I think he only did, like, five. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, That's a major problem with this case, is that it was so famous that a lot of people were admitting to it for various reasons, such as, like, the fame of being known as the killer of a famous case and mental illness influencing it. So... Based on this very troubling confession that had many problems, um, prosecution built a case. And in 2015, completely on his confession and basically hearsay evidence that he had supposedly confessed to the crime in the past, they had no body, no physical evidence, and no forensic evidence, but they built the case on his confession. So in 2015, his first trial was declared a mistrial because the verdict was 11 to 1. One jury member did not agree with the, the guilty verdict because they agreed with the defense that there was a high concern for mental illness and coercion by police into his false confession. Also, he was worried about the lack of a body. All very reasonable. Right? That is like more than one of the 12 should have thought about that. <laughs> exactly. Despite the mistrial um, and the concerns brought up by defense and a jury member that this was not a fit confession, they retried him in 2017. And the new jury found him guilty of kidnapping and murdering Eaton Pats, and he was sentenced to live in federal prison for 25 years to life. So that's how that story ends. Supposedly it is solved. 
I don't believe it is solved because I don't totally believe that Hernandez is guilty. I agree yeah. with that. I don't think he did it. Mm-mm. I think those investigators need should have worked on the Keddy Kappa murders. Mm-hmm. They built a whole case off of a confession. Hearsay confession. Sounds oh, yeah. a little familiar. <laughs> and this is, I guess, just like a bit extra information to help the prosecution against Hernandez. So his parents initially believed Ramos did it because in 2004, they filed the civil suit. They were like, nope, you killed our son. We're positive. In 2010, they asked the district attorney to reverse the decision because they were like, nope, we change our mind based on this new evidence. We're positive it was Hernandez and we need this old decision reversed so that we can prosecute him. Like, okay. (laughs) And his father was so convinced that Ramos did it for so many years that on the 30th anniversary of his son's disappearance, Stan Patz, which is his father, told uh, news outlets in an interview that every year he sent a special reminder to Ramos in prison that his son's case was not forgotten. He, he would mail one of the old lost child posters to Ramos every year with a simple typewritten line on the back that read, what did you do to my little boy? Oh. So if he was so convinced that it was him and then changes mind years later because he's like, oh, there's new evidence of a mentally ill man who may have done it. Like, this isn't a sound case. No, not at something, all. Yeah, something has had to have come up for him to change his mind. Like, either a monetary incentive or something. Because no one who is that, like, into believing this man killed his son will just automatically flip and be like, oh, maybe this guy did it instead. Yeah. So... The last thing I have to say about this case is that Eaton Pats really sparked like the national encouragement to put more of an effort into solving these cases. Uh, So in 1983, Ronald Reagan declared May 25th, which is the day that Pats went missing. He declared it National Missing Children's Day in America in honor of Eaton Pats. That's very interesting. (laughs) I did not know that there was a National Missing Children's Day. So that's everything I have on Eaton Pats. Um, it's, it's a mess of a case, but yeah. All of ours, I think. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for the very mysterious stories. And we really hope everyone listening enjoyed them. Uh, we did it a little bit differently this week. We didn't talk about a forensic science, but we wanted to switch it up for Halloween. Um, and now we are going to draw for the case we will be discussing in our next episode. So... Again, we did the number generator, 0 through 150 on our handy-dandy Google. And this week, it gave us number two. And if I go to my trusty big book of serial killers, this gives us Stephen Akinmural. Akinmural. Akin. Akinmural. We'll, we'll work on the pronunciation for next episode. <laughs> I think he was in England, was he not? Yeah. Yeah, so he's uh, a little far from home in Canada. 
make sure to tune in next week when we talk about Stephen Akinmural and the forensic evidence that convicted him. Uh, I believe what helped find him in this case was fingerprint analysis, was it not? Yeah. yeah. Super cool. So that's what we'll be talking about next episode. Make sure to tune in. Uh, and Journey, where can they find us? They can find us on Instagram and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WTF Forensics PC. Our YouTube is What the Forensics, and our website is WhatTheForensics.ca. We're also on Buzzsprout, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else that you can listen to podcasts. So please do give us a listen. Yeah, we really thank you guys. We'll see you next time. And this has been another episode of What the Forensics. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Thank you.